Good morning, Midland Free. Good morning. Welcome to our church. If it's your first time or if you're visiting, just to enjoy the children, we're definitely glad you're here. As you can see, we have a wonderful children's ministry here, and it is growing, and uh, all the young moms and dads are doing the best to keep that going. But even if you're not a parent, we uh, invite you to pray for and encourage this ministry because you can be a blessing uh, as well. If you're not a parent, that's a great place for you to serve uh, and give the parents a break. So whatever uh, spot you're in, you have an opportunity to serve here. So thank you uh, for your support of this ministry. My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors. I get to preach, and that's an awesome, awesome deal. They actually pay me to do this, so I don't object to that. Um, We are studying the book of Galatians. This is uh, Paul's letter to a group of churches in a country we now call Turkey, which was the Roman province of Galatia. So it's off the Mediterranean Sea, and it's got a bunch of different little spots, and the apostle is writing to them because they're new to the faith, and they're a little bit confused and trying to get things figured out. Amen? <laughs> Amen. You may not be new to the faith, but guess what? This is uh, very much what we experience on a daily basis. You are in this journey. Even if you're not on the missionary journey of the Apostle Paul, you're on the missionary journey of Midland Free. So we invite you to walk with us as we carry the gospel. Galatians chapter 4, it's, it's an interesting story, and I'm actually going to do things quite a bit different today, which I pretty much probably say every week, but um, that's the, kind of the fun of it, right? You don't get to know what to expect, and you just come and see what happens. What's that crazy dude going to do this week? Here we go. Uh, Galatians chapter 4, what it does is it goes back and it looks into an Old Testament story. And from that story, it sort of extrapolates or comes to uh, an additional meaning. Now, typically in the Bible, uh, this is not necessarily a good way to approach things, to allegorize them or to attach a secondary meaning. But the Apostle Paul is the Apostle Paul, so he can do what he wants, right? He gets to do this, and in this scenario, what he does is he takes a historical story, and then he attaches a spiritual significance to it. So he sort of creates a parallel universe, if you will, these two tracks running side by side. There's the historical account, which really happened to these people, and has a greater significance in salvific or redemptive history. And then there's also the way in which he will use this to argue his point against the people uh, in the setting he's addressing. So it has sort of a both and. So what I'm going to do is I'm not going to necessarily assume you're super familiar with the story, although you may be. I'll just review or recap uh, the story of uh, what happens with Abraham and Sarah. So let's skip the theme slide and show them the structure first. What I'll do is... Uh, I will show you basically the story of Abraham and Sarah. That's the first part. And then the next part is I'm going to explain the side-by-side comparison, the physical, historical story, and the spiritual significance. And then after that, I'm finally going to get to Galatians chapter 3, which all of this is based upon. So we're going to go to Galatians, or sorry, Galatians 4 right there. Usually I start by reading the text and go from there, but this takes you back like 2,000 years from then, which is 4,000 years from now. And so I want to sort of walk you down this path. And of course, at the end, we'll apply the teaching to our life. 
So we're going to look at the story of Abraham and Sarah, which is what happens in Galatians chapter 4, and also way back in the beginning in Genesis chapter 12, 15, 16, and following. And basically the theme that we will see from Abraham and Sarah is this. Here is the theme of today's, um, today's sermon, is that the real stuff happens when you let God be God. The real stuff happens when you let God be God. And I know we can attach a lot of cliches and foreign meaning to that, but I'll sort of walk you through this as we go. But basically what it means is this, is um, the real stuff happens by the hand of God. When God does it, that's what's real. When we do it or we try to force it or we try to make it happen or compel it with our own fist or our own hands or our own might, we mess it up. So in a parallel way of saying it, the real stuff happens by the hand of God and rather than the work of human beings. So God makes the good stuff happen. Whenever anything good happens, it's from God. Does that make sense? Okay. So here's what happens then, <clears throat> going back from our time period, about 4,000 years. Obviously, this is a very different setting. This is a patriarchal period, so the men dominate everything. Women have very little say in anything. And it's also a very agrarian society as well. So what that means is, uh, rather than modern methods of specialization and post uh, industrial revolution, etc. They're just living off of the land. Consequently, what happens is the more people you have in your family, the more chances you have of success because you're building this little army or community of workers. You want your tribe to increase because as it does so, there's sort of an economy of scale, if you will. The more little boys you have to work the land, the more you can expand, the more you can eat, the better you'll do. And so the goal in that society is to produce a lot of children and then expand the farm, grow the family farm. That's the goal. Consequently, the families are set up like this. You know, you, you find a wife and guess what the wife's job is? Make babies, right? The more babies, the better, because the more babies, then the more workers, then the better the farm and the better you'll be. And so the wife's job is basically uh, to reproduce. <clears throat> that is her role in that society. So what happens then is you enter into this cultural setting, you'll see that the women assume their role. They don't challenge it a whole lot. And the Bible is not necessarily saying this is good or this is bad. The Bible just says this is the way it was. There's a lot of description in the Bible that doesn't necessarily speak to whether it is good or bad. It just says this was how it was. So in Genesis chapter 12 then, there's this <clears throat> pagan idolater by the name of Abram who lives in the land of Ur. And God, out of the blue, comes to this guy of no merit whatsoever of his own and just decides to make him the channel of blessing through whom the entire world will be blessed. God is going to raise up a Messiah that is an anointed one, a king, a savior, a coming ruler, a Lord, someone to control the earth and fix the mess through this one family line. So God chooses Abram. Like, You're the guy. Okay, 
Genesis chapter 12. This is how it works. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And here's the unconditional covenant blessing. I will make you a great nation. A great nation. That implies what in this setting? Lots of people, right? Lots of children. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Oh, so it's not just for you, it's for everyone else. Yes, that's right. And I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, here is the first gospel or the proto the first gospel. Um, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Then that covenant is reiterated in Genesis chapter 15. More specifically, this is what the Lord says to Abram. After some other stuff had happened, God comes back and after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision and said, Fear not, Abram. Listen to this. This is kind of neat. I am your shield and your reward. God is his portion and inheritance. And um, your reward will be very great. But but Abraham said, O Lord God, what can you give me? Because I continue to be childless. Behold, you have given me no offspring. How can I be a great nation if we're not reproducing? And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he brought him outside and said, Look towards the heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham was saved by grace through faith. He believed. And so here's the story. This is the setup. You know, you're an agrarian society. You're supposed to become a big tribe and you have no kids. How is that going to work? Abraham and Sarah, this is their life. They're given this unconditional unilateral covenant, this promise from God. And they're told that they're going to bless the rest of the world and they're going to be this huge nation. And yet they're barren. No children. And that, I suppose, would be fine for a while, but after a significant period of time, they're looking at it, scratching their heads, going, what in the world is going on? <laughs> Did I hear you right, Lord? Are you making a mistake? From all we can tell, we are completely infertile. Moreover, we're beyond the childbearing age. We're now past that time period in life, and nothing is happening. And the doubts begin to swirl in their mind, even if they haven't said anything out loud yet. They begin to question God and wonder about His sovereignty in, his life, in their lives. Do you ever get there? Have you felt that way before? You know, Lord, I know you said you're good. I know you said you'll provide. I know you said you'll forgive me. I know you said you'll bless me, but I just don't see it. God, where is it? I do not see it happening. This is where Sarah is in her spiritual journey right now. You can say, oh, she heard from the Lord. But you know what? We've heard from the Lord too. We've got Scripture. Ephesians 1, Romans 8, Revelation 21. Our blessing, our inheritance, our eternal rewards. We have that promise too, unconditionally and unilaterally. And yet, we begin to doubt just like Sarah. And so what does she do? Well, she takes matters into her own hands. I guess if God's not coming through, I can fix this. 
And what she does is almost unthinkable for a wife to do, and yet she does. She goes to her husband, says, look, this thing is not happening. We've got to help God out a little bit. Why don't we do this? It's not like it's unheard of in our culture. If this sort of thing happens, I recognize I'm infertile. I take the blame. It's my fault. Whatever. Take my handmaid. Do the thing that you do. And if she gets pregnant, then we'll have a son. And after that, we can call it good. I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to know about it. I don't want anything. Just come back to me with a baby, and that baby will be mine. This was her approach. Isn't that a little weird? I mean, can you imagine a, a, a wife saying that to her husband? And yet here she is actually making this suggestion, and sure enough, it happens. Husband says, sure, okay, and he does his thing. He goes into Hagar, she gets pregnant, she has a baby, and then the, the snowball just tumbles down the hill from there on out. I mean, Hagar mocks Sarah for infertility. If that isn't a low enough blow in and of itself, uh, Sarah responds by abusing Hagar. Hagar runs away. Hagar comes back. Their children have it out with one another. They can't get along. And before you know it, this house is a mess. And at the end of the day, it becomes very clear that if we don't separate, we're going to kill each other. Literally. And so Sarah goes to her husband and says, get rid of this slave woman. Get her out of here. I cannot stand her anymore. We cannot coexist in this same household. You've got to get her out. Get rid of her. And Abram does, feeling bad for his son and for Hagar. And as a result, what you see is basically what you see today. There is this huge history and baggage attached to this broken family. The Ishmaelites, that is the Arabs, go one way, and the Jacobites, or the sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, go another way, and they never get over it. And they hate each other to the death till this day. They fight and argue about whose land it is, whose promise it is, whose blessing it is, and yada, yada, yada. And this family baggage goes way down the line. It makes for a major mess. This is the result of taking matters into your own hand instead of believing God. You look at this story and you say, well, what was she thinking? I mean, what woman would advise her husband to go to some other woman? And the answer is she wasn't. What was she thinking? She wasn't. Why? Because she had become so obsessed with having this child, that all forms of logic and faith are thrown to the wind. And in reality, we may say to ourselves, hey, I'd never do something like that. But in many ways we do, and it may not be cheating on our spouse, but perhaps it's some other thing in your life that you have said, this is so important to me, this is a really good thing, God has promised it to me, I don't see it yet, and so I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to do whatever I have to do to force this thing through, even if we have to fudge around the edges a little bit. Whether it's my taxes, or my bills, or my insurance, or whatever, God has promised certain things, and I haven't seen them fulfilled, and so I'm going to help him out a little. This is what we're going to do. 
Just cut a little corner, take a little off the edges, and make it happen. It's all right. I work hard. Surely God won't mind. This is what happens when we take things into our own hands. And there's a book by Ken Sandy that talks about this a little bit in The Peacemaker, interestingly enough. And what he says is, it's very easy for a good desire to turn bad. Let me read his quote to you because I think it's particularly poignant and I want it to come just directly from him so you know it's not per se from me. But here's how it goes. He says, It's important to emphasize the fact that idols can arise from good desires, good stuff that you want, as well as wicked desires. We think they're mostly bad and evil, but it could actually be a good thing that you just become obsessed with. It's not often... What we want, that is the problem, but the problem is that we want it too much. For example, it is not unreasonable for a man to want a passionate sexual relationship with his wife, or for a mother to want to stay at home with a newborn baby. Nor is it wrong for an employer to want diligent workers or a pastor to desire respect from his deacons. These are good desires. But if they turn into demands that must be met in order for us to be satisfied and fulfilled, then they lead to bitterness, resentment, self-pity, and they can destroy a family, a business, or even a church. And indeed they do. Pause for a moment and let that sink in. What you want might be good. The problem is not what you want, but how bad you want it. Children, your job, your marriage, your ministry, your career, they're all good. But if you want it too much, then it becomes an idol and it's bad. The only thing that you can want with an insatiable desire is Christ himself. And when you desire and long for that more than anything else, then everything else takes its proper place. But church, we absolutely must realize this and this clearly. When we stop believing God and start taking matters into our own hands, we have become slaves to our own desires. We are no longer ruling them. They are ruling us. We have become the slaves. When you try to fix things on your own, things get messy in a hurry. No matter how good it is, no matter how beautiful, how true, or whatever, if if you have to do it on your own, all by yourself, then you're going to mess something up. The real stuff happens. The good stuff happens. By the hand of God. When you let God be God. Now let me show you how the Bible talks about it in this story. It puts them side by side in a parallel statement. It does this in the Psalms and the Proverbs a lot with parallel poetry or side by side poetry. And here's what it does. It says in Galatians chapter 4 verse 23. This is the New Living Translation just for clarity. The son of the slave wife was born in a human attempt. To bring about the fulfillment of God's promises. That's Ishmael from Hagar. But the son of the freeborn wife, that's Sarah, was born as 
God's own fulfillment of his promise. That's Isaac. So what this story is trying to show you is that the good stuff happens by the hand of God. Now, what does that mean? It's so confusing because you're just telling me, Jeremy, my own efforts mess things up and God gets it right. So what do you want me to do? Nothing? Do I sit back and just lay, lay down and do nothing? No, it's actually the exact opposite. What happens is this. When the Bible says, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength and mount up like eagles, what that wait word is, is actually the same word that's used of lions in a hunt. So in other words, it's not wait like I fall asleep and take a nap and don't pay attention anymore. It's like I am praying expectantly and fervently and trusting God to do this. And as I do so, man, I'm crouched down in that grass and my bottom is wiggling and my tail's twitching and I'm waiting for that thing to come across. And as soon as it does, boom, pounce. But I'm not getting up from my spot until it does. Because this is where I'm supposed to wait until the Lord decides to move and bring that opportunity in front of me. And when he does, bang, I jump on it. But up until then, I wait. Not asleep, but fully focused and paying attention and expectant upon what God is going to do. Abraham and Sarah illustrate that we have to wait. They get ahead of the game. They jump out too early. They scare away the prize. They mess things up. The real stuff happens when you wait. Well, with that theme in mind then, let us transition then to Galatians chapter 4. The country of modern-day Turkey to this province of Galatia and see what in the world is going on. Here's what's happening. There are two groups of people. There's the Judaizers who are arguing that salvation occurs by um, following the law, the Old Testament commands. If you follow this ritualistic, legalistic system, then you will earn God's favor and you will yourself produce the works of righteousness that are necessary to get into God's eternal kingdom. And the Apostle Paul has come along and said, no, 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 guys, nothing like that at all. You've got to understand you will never be good enough. The whole point of the law is that it's temporary, it's coming to an end, and it's supposed to get you back on the right path. And so, as a result, you cannot be trusting in this side road. You need to be believing by faith, just like Abraham, in Jesus, in the Messiah and the Anointed One. That's the only way for you to succeed. And these guys are still like, no, 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 la, 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 <laughs> you know, la, 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 ooh, I just thought of that one, la, la, get it, la, la, like. Oh, yeah. All right. Good. All right. These guys are arguing for law all the way. I should write that down for the next service. <laughs> la, 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 la. Okay, got it. La. There we go. Oh, man. Good one. They probably won't even laugh. That's what happens. You guys laugh at something. I try it in the next one. It doesn't work. I'm like, man, what happened? Ugh. Preaching. Anyways. They're arguing for la, 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 the whole way through. La, 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 la. And Apostle Paul saying, no, no, no. And then he's like, what can I do to convince these people it's not law? It's like, I know. I'll take their law and convince them it's not law. He's going to totally flip the script. He's going to use their stuff against them. They claim to be sons of Abraham. We are the biological children through whom all the world will be blessed. We have the law. And he says, how'd that work? 
You're not sons of Abraham. You're actually sons of Hagar. Whoa. How is that going to make a Jew feel? You just called me an illegitimate son of a slave. (laughs) Them are fighting words. But for those who are trusting in the law, the Apostle Paul says that's essentially what you're doing is enslaving yourself to your own desires. You, you want to go under that system? Sure. But then you're a slave and you're stuck. So here's how it works. It's a beautiful, beautiful way of doing things. He sets them side by side. And he asks this sort of rhetorical question in Galatians chapter 4, verse 21. This is the why go back title. He's saying, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Let's review our history a little bit. How did that work out for you? And so, let me tell you a little story. There's this guy by the name of Abraham. I think you've heard of him, right? (laughs) You're a Jew. All right, go ahead and show that slide. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to take this story of Abraham and we're going to walk it down two different paths. Abraham's in the middle and sort of a flow chart going out from the sides. So there's Sarah the free on the one side. She's the wife wife. And then there's Hagar the slave, the maidservant on the other. And you guys know the story. You know how it worked. It started out with Abraham and Sarah not being able to have a baby. And so all of a sudden Hagar's brought into the picture She's the human shortcut. She's the, you know, sort of side route. And as a result, they have a baby. That human shortcut is born of the flesh, and that's Ishmael. But then 14 years later, that's when Abram was 86. When he's 100, 14 years later, God decides to act. And God uh, helps Abram impregnate Sarah. As a result, this child is considered born of the Spirit. Pay attention to that word. You'll see that throughout Scripture. Born of the Spirit, and it's a miraculous sort of deal. This wouldn't have happened any other way but for God to act. And then there's Isaac. So we go down this path, and now, with that in mind, keep this slide up. I'm going to read the text. You guys watch this and listen to this text. Here is the analogy playing out. I'll read it to you from the Bible, but I'd really like you to watch it on the screen as this, um, as Paul argues for these two different arguments okay here we go for it is written this is galatians chapter 4 verse 22 feel free to watch it on this screen this is this verse playing out it is written that abram had two sons right you agree with that genesis one by the slave woman one by the free but the son of the slave was born according to the flesh while the son of the free woman was born through the promise now here's another slide Galatians chapter 4, verse 24a. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. Now, here's the allegory. Okay, so we're going to look at this next slide. And this shows the allegory then of the descendants. He's attaching spiritual meaning to it through this flowchart. So he says, these women represent or are two covenants. So Sarah's one, Hagar's the other. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Mount Sinai is where they got the law. So that's why Mount Sinai represents slavery. It represents the law. Here's the giving of the law, the Ten Commandments. Okay. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem. That's 
you Judaizers, where you live, you guys are under the law, you're under Mount Sinai, you're under slavery. You guys correspond to to Hagar. But the Jerusalem above, that is the eternal city, heaven, God's kingdom, is free. And she is our, that is the evangelical Christian's mother. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of the promise. Christians are children of the promise. But just at, as at that time, he, was, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, that is Judaizers are now persecuting Christians, so also is it now. But what does scripture say? Get this, this is really weird, but I'll explain it in a minute. Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So then, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. So from that slide, I hope you see what's happening. You can take the slide away now. I know it's a little small there. If you want to download them online, you can do that. Just go to our church's website and uh, you can have all those slides and you can watch the flow chart. The idea is just to represent, you know, in, in, on one side, what's, what you have is Hagar, the law, and human effort, and slavery, and Ishmael. On the other side, what you have is Sarah, and faith, and divine effort, and freedom. Those are completely contrasted. And what he's saying to the Jews is, if you think that you're going to make it through the law, what the law actually shows you is that you're enslaved. You're on the wrong side of the law. Oh man, that was another one. Abraham and Sarah illustrate the real stuff happens by the hand of God. In other words, what comes naturally is not good. What comes supernaturally is good. What is born of the flesh is flesh, but what is born of the spirit is spirit. In other words, very much like Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 63, human effort accomplishes nothing. The spirit alone gives life. Watch this theme throughout the whole Bible. It's beautiful. Isaac was born of the what? Spirit. Christmas time, what happens? The Spirit moves and Jesus is conceived in Mary. Then Jesus comes and in John chapter 3, he says to Nicodemus, what? You have to be born again. How? By being born of the Spirit. All throughout the Bible, it is showing you a very clear and consistent pattern that when God does something, it's good, and we do something, it's not. And so the really good stuff happens when it's of the Spirit. So even in our church, even in our hometown, even in our own ministry and our family, we just can't force it through. We have to pray. We have to wait on God. And we have to see what He has in store. We can't make this thing happen. It's on Him. It doesn't mean we sit back and look the other way. It means we look straight ahead in eager expectation for God to move. And even if, like Abram, we have to wait a hundred years, we still wait and pray and expect God to move. Why would you do it any other way? Let God be God. 
Only God is sovereign. Only God can change hearts. Only God controls all things, and only God has all the resources you need to get it done. You're not all-powerful. You can't change their hearts, and you don't have everything you need. Let God be God. Therefore, stop fearing, relax, and go forth in freedom. Wait upon the Lord, pray expectantly, watch and wait, and seize the day when it arrives. If His hand is in it, it works. If it's not, it doesn't. So how do we do this? Well, listen to Scripture. This is what Scripture says. This is where it gets really weird. Um, Verse 30. What does Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free. Whoa, what is that, Paul? Are you some, you know, weird Ku Klux Klan crazy dude? No. Remember, this is an allegory. So what he's doing, and besides, he just got done saying, you know, there's no more slave, Jew, Greek, free, anything in Christ, you're good. So it's not that. What he's saying is that the slavery and freedom are two mutually incompatible systems. They are mutually exclusive. So you guys want to live by the law? Good luck. You will never get saved. The only way for something good to happen is to get rid of the bad and go with the good. You've got to get rid of slavery, get rid of this Hagar, Ishmael, Mount Sinai legalistic system that's got you trapped and follow Jesus. That is the way to freedom and that is the way to life. You cannot exist under this old system. You have to get rid of the old and go with the new. This is the only way. In other words, what they are trying to do, Galatians chapter 4 verse 10 says is that they were trying to earn their favor with God. They did it through observing you know, certain days or months or years or feasts or whatever. But we do that all the time too. We, we go to God and we think, you know, hey, if I just do this or if I just do this, then eventually he'll like me more. He might answer my prayer. I put a little extra in the plate. You know, I spend some time in prayer. And man, surely that's going to manipulate the deity to give me what I want. <laughs> As if God is a genie in the bottle that we can say hocus pocus and make him dance. No way. We just got done saying God is sovereign. God is good. God is all powerful. So we need to just trust him to be that. And what that means is this. You may think it's a fairly fatalistic or deterministic point of view. But it's the only way I can reconcile the world is this. Whatever God wants to happen will happen. Whatever God wants to happen will happen because he makes it happen. And whatever happens then means that God wanted it. Well, that's, a, that's, a pretty hard, that's the hard part, right? Let's say the second half. But what I mean is this, is even though there is evil in the world that's brought about as a result of the act of free choices of human beings, that God is never the author of evil, God is never responsible for evil, but in his sovereignty, he is a chosen to allow it. And he will allow it to impact you, whether it's via your decisions, someone else's decisions, or the fact that you just live in a fallen world, somehow this stuff's going to hit you. And at that point, you can't say, well, I guess God's not sovereign anymore, because if he was, he could have stopped it. No, he's still sovereign, and he could have stopped it. But for some reason, he chose to allow it. 
And so in his sovereignty, we have to believe in God's amazing, incredible power, even in situations that are way beyond us, that just seem no, no answer whatsoever. We've tried everything. It didn't work. I don't get it. Yes, those are real, and your feelings are valid. But at the end of the day, God is sovereign. And we've got to trust him through it. He is not a giant Santa in the sky who really wants good things for his people but just can't always make it happen. He is completely powerful and in control. And so what he wants to happen does. And whatever happens, it means he wanted it. So what do we do then? Well, we look at our life and we say, okay, God, you're sovereign. I'm not. You're in control. This path, this call, this journey, just like Abraham, is being controlled by you. So I've got to follow. And if there's an area in my life where I'm bumping up against the wall so hard that I'm just beating my head, I need to ask myself the question, am I trying to force this thing through or is this really God's will? Because if it's God's will, it's going to happen and I don't have to break my head on the wall. I can wait for him to move it. Where are things not working? Where do you feel frustrated? Where do you feel jealous or envious? Where do you feel vulnerable? In that spot, you are in the position of Sarah. You're believing that there's something that is good, that you desire, that is God's will, but it's not happening yet. And so you've got to stop for a moment and say, okay, am I going to try to force this thing through and make it happen on my own, or am I going to let God be God? That's how you walk through this process. You say, I believe He is sovereign. So where am I frustrated? What is not working? Where do I need to take a step back and say, okay, Lord, this is now on you. I don't know what to do. I've tried this route. I've tried this route. It's not going forward, Lord. If you want this to happen, you've got to make it. If not, I'm going to believe you don't. Lord, show me what you want. That's the story of Abraham and Sarah. Good things happen by the hand of God. When we get involved, not so much. Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, 1. It's a really, really neat verse. It ends this whole chapter, this whole section like this. What it's doing is it's, it's tying together the first half of the book and the last half. And if you read ahead, which you're more than welcome to do, you'll see the last, last half is all these commands. This is how you're to live your life. This is what you're to do. This is how your family should look. Blah, 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 blah. And the beginning is all the teaching. This is the theology. This is the doctrine. Well, what's the deal? What happens is Paul is moving from the... Listen to this. This is very important. This is Paul moving from the indicative to the imperative. In other words, what he is doing is saying, uh, Christians, this is the way your life works. It moves from God's work to our work. From the indicative to the imperative. God did this. Therefore, because His hand is in it, you can do this. We start with Galatians 1 through 4, and then we move to 5 through 6. Because of God's justification, you can live out your sanctification. 
Because he forgave you, you can forgive others. Because he sacrificed himself, you can sacrifice yourself. Because Jesus resurrected from the dead, you have the guarantee of eternal life. Because Jesus will inherit all things and you get Jesus, you inherit all things. Your inheritance is based on him. Your rewards, your activity, everything goes back to what he did. It's all on Christ. So you read this verse and it's so beautiful. He impacts the entire letter in one sentence. He says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Indicative. Boom. Flat statement. God did. This is what God did. He set you free. You are free. Therefore, because you are, stand firm. Don't go back. And do not submit. That is in the passive voice. Do not be submitted Or be controlled by the things you used to be controlled by. That's going the wrong way. Do you really want to go back into slavery? Because of what Christ did. Desire Him and your desires will not control you. Let the desire for Christ control all of your other desires. Desire Him above all else and you will desire the right thing. For freedom, Christ has set you free. Therefore, stand in that. Stand firm and don't be submitted ever and ever again to the yoke of slavery. Man, if we could really wrap our minds around it, we would be an awesome church. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're, I think we're pretty cool, right? Don't get me wrong. But boy, this is something. I mean, this is where you can say, boy, for freedom, I'm free. I'm, I'm totally free. Yes, you're free. So what would you do if there was no risk in it whatsoever? If God said, I will answer any request you give, what would you do? You're free. And if it's, it's his desire, he'll make it happen. It's not based on your resources or your ability. It's based on God's. So if you really believe that you're free, if you really, like Abraham, by faith, believe, what would you do? No limits. No risk. God's in charge. God's running this thing. What would you do? For freedom, Christ has set you free. Stand firm. Where do I need to stand firm? Well, probably in the answers to those questions I asked earlier. Where am I frustrated? Where are things not working? Where do I feel jealous? Where am I vulnerable? Where am I envious? What persons or things would try to put me under their control? What desires would try to rule my life? I begin to ask those questions and those things come to mind. That's where I need to say, don't go back. Don't go back. That's trying to rule over me. That obsession, that desire may be good, but if it comes over here, it's bad. I can't go back. Something else has to control me. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Therefore, do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Church, I love you and I want what's best for you and I'm really hoping that we'll grab a hold of this. We will just embrace the incredible sovereignty and grace of God. Galatians chapter 1 through Galatians chapter 4. And we will believe in His plan for our life and we won't try to force our own way through at any point. But instead, by faith through by grace through faith, we will wait on Him and we will pray in fervent and eager expectation for God to act. And when He does, we'll pounce. And we'll know that that's the hand of God. I think that's our call for our lives and for our church, for our community, for the world, for everything else. Moving from the indicative to the imperative, for freedom, 
Christ has set us free. Therefore, stand firm.